Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I am Sean Merwin, here for once without Teos Abadia, because Teos is on vacation for the next couple weeks, but boy, do I have an episode for you, because I have with me the author of the just-released book, Slaying the Dragon, A Secret History of Dungeons and Dragons, none other than Benjamin Rigg. Hey, Ben, thank you for being on the show. Hi, and just, you know, it's Benjamin, uh, Ben Riggs. There's an S oh, at the end. sorry that, about that. That's okay. Don't worry about it. It's not a huge deal. You can even leave it in if you want to. I won't complain. <laughs> I, people know that I, I mess things up all the time. So, well, th- uh, thanks for coming on the show to talk to us. I am super enthused about talking with you. Uh, so many things. Uh, but before we get into the book and, and the history of the game, what's your origin story? So, uh, I was born and raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, I kind of went off for 10 years and wandered the world. Uh, I taught in Egypt for two years, Japan for a year, China for a year. Uh, In that time, I acquired a Canadian wife. Um, We then came back to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, just in time for the recession in 2008. Uh, I became a full-time teacher and in on the side, I would podcast and uh, about role playing games, which led into writing about role playing games for Geek and Sundry. And then uh, I was assigned an article, which you could summarize pretty aptly as, uh, <clears throat> "Hey, did you know Wizards of the Coast didn't always make D anD D?" And I, I got that assignment because I'm still here in Wisconsin, um, and I can't, there's you know kind of some TSR folks still hanging around here. So I started to uh, write this article. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I know this exact story. Wizards of the Coast killed uh, TSR is, is the story I'm going to tell. And I talk to people and I talk to people and I talk to people. And one article becomes three and people start just sending me documents. And, you know, hey, here's a random house contract from 1981. Hey, uh, you know, <laughs> here are sales numbers that, you know, I just had in my basement for, you know, 20 years. And oh, don't use my name. No. Um, <laughs> so the. Uh, the, the book in some ways I say chose me because I just kind of kept chasing the story. And as I kept chasing the story, I, I just learned things uh, that continually shocked me. Uh, for example, the Planescape setting never made any money. Um, <laughs> I'm like, what? Planescape, Planescape might be the best thing TSR ever made and it didn't make any money. Um so that is kind of the story of me and the book and uh, where the book came from. Awesome. So just to go back a little bit, what was your uh, experience with D&D? Did you play as a kid? You know, was it something that you played and then left? What, what, what was your interest in the game itself? Like I played a little bit of D&D, um, second edition specifically. I played way more uh, Vampire, Mage, World of Darkness, Call of Cthulhu, Delta Green, Legend of the Five Rings. Like, I'm definitely a hardened role player. Um, but D&D was always kind of a, a, a bit of a cultural artifact more than a, a game I would play. Because, um, again, you know, second edition was my edition. Um, I, I vividly remember buying the complete fighter and the complete elf and just making characters and making characters and making characters. But at the time I didn't have anyone to play with. And by the time I got to high school, uh, all the seniors were like, Oh, 80 and D meh. 
it's kind of a Model T, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a fine artifact, but have you seen Shadowrun? <laughs> ah, yeah. Or, you know, or, 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 you know, various other games. Because again, AD&D second edition was kind of long in the tooth by 1993, 1994. Um, and a lot of those other games were, you know, just really, really good at the time. I'm, I'm sure if I was in high school when third edition was around, I might still be playing third edition. Uh, Cause I, I certainly have an affection for that, but yeah, D and D like for <coughs> having read a bunch of novels and for having read a bunch of the rule books, never actually played a ton. Like I tried, I, I'm, I'm running right now. Uh, Beck me um, using old school essentials. Okay. Um, and even then, like my my players are like, let's go to the town and just talk to everyone. I'm like, okay, <laughs> fine. You know, I thought we would go kill some orcs or something, but okay, if you want to talk to people in the town, that's fine too. I can do that. Uh, that's yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting though that you you are from Milwaukee, which is obviously you know right there in the cradle of D and D between Madison and and. Uh, Lake Geneva and and Milwaukee, but yet D and D wasn't. Was it was it a big thing uh, culturally back in when you started when you were you know a, a youngster playing? Um, no, in in that like you know it was a, a frowned upon activity. Mm-hmm. You know, it was the the the, the nerds do this and. Um, that was one of the appeals of like, you know, vampire was, Hey, it's, it's, it's a role playing game like D and D, but it's not D and D because it's like D and D for cool people, you know, girl, right. girls come play this with me. Um, so like, uh, and even within the state, like it was, it was well known, but it, everyone was kind of like, uh, yeah, it's from here. Those weirdos in Lake Geneva. Um, <laughs> I, I remember hearing a story from uh, Jim Louder about how uh, there's a gigantic music festival called Summerfest in Milwaukee every year. And TSR just wanted to have a booth at Summerfest promoting Dungeons and Dragons. And the city fathers of Milwaukee made them go through these insane hoops and then still told them no, that they couldn't do it. Um, so like, you know, it, it's from here, but a lot of people are like, it's this weird thing. We don't really get it. You know, uh, so again, it, it was it, it was an anti-cultural artifact. It was a, a an outcast piece of knowledge. Yeah, I mean, people would descend on Milwaukee for Gen Con every year, and you know, now that it's in Indianapolis, it's you know, a huge thing with almost a hundred thousand people coming every year. So it'd be hard, kind of hard to avoid it. It would seem. Crazy to think how much better Indianapolis does than Milwaukee at that though. And again, shameful to say for our city, but like the way Indy just lays out the welcome mat for Gen Con was never like that in Milwaukee. Every year the the paper would run one article about Gen Con being like, here come the nerds again. It was always (laughs) kind of a like, you know, slightly frowning, slightly shaming article of like, you know, you might just be trying to get to work with your coffee and donuts, but there's some barbarian with a sword and a backpack. Oh, who's this weird dude? You know? Yeah. Um, and again, I feel like growing up in Wisconsin, even though this should be the story of a, a classic Wisconsin company mm-hmm. selling a product co-created by a Wisconsinite, which you could argue could only have been created in Wisconsin. Um nobody you know even to this day like you know nobody is suggesting gary gygax should be put into like the wisconsin hall of fame or anything like that even though he probably should be 
Okay, so so you you were writing articles for Geek and Sundry, and this information just kept pouring in. When did you look and say, "Wait a second, I've got a book here"? So, um, it was when one of the vice presidents of marketing at TSR explained to me TSR's relationship with Random House hmm. and how TSR could print product and ship it to Random House and get paid for that product within thirty days. And that allowed the buildup of this like absolutely fatal debt. Um, But it also explained a ton of weird stuff the company did. Um, That was when, and and, uh, that got cut from my Geek and Sundry article. Mm. Uh, The editorial hand at Geek and Sundry was fairly light, but it was, it was definitely, uh, Hey, it should be light. It should be peppy. It should be upbeat. This is like originally Felicia Day's, pardon me, Felicia Day's website. Right. So uh, you want to make sure that you're kind of upbeat all the time. And that information was definitely a bummer. Um, yeah. So it got cut. And I'm like, but no one knows this as far as I know. Like, I got to get this out there. This is crazy. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'll write 10,000 words. And uh, I will then kickstarter you know just like five ten bucks for some pdf on this but i was like you know uh i asked myself okay so if the shipping of product became the printing of money for tsr what on earth were they doing with all of this money um which led to me researching things like tsr west their attempt to start a comic book company which was a spectacular and dramatic failure um, their attempt to uh, break into the CD-ROM market with the AD&D core rule CD-ROM, and they ended up uh, financing a uh, computer startup in Madison called, I think, Evermore Entertainment. They uh, produced Dragon Strike, which is, of course, an introductory product of the video that was filmed in Hollywood with actors that they ganked from the uh, Universal Sword and Sorcery Spectacular. Uh, <laughs> and you know, you know, like that was its own set of insanity. And again, like TSR West, as far as I know, no one really knows that story until they've read my book. Um, and they irritate DC Comics. They, <laughs> oh my God. Um, so that was then, that was years of work though, what I'm describing right there. Like, right. you know, okay, we're going to chase down the people who uh, made Dragon Strike. We're going to chase down the people that were involved in TSR West. Um, and then of course, you know, as I'm charting the fall of TSR, I also need to chart the rise of Wizards of the Coast. I had to interview uh, Peter Adkison, uh, now the owner of Gen Con, co-founder of uh, Wizards of the Coast. Um, I had to interview Lisa Stevens, who is now the publisher of Paizo. Uh, but at the time she was just Wizards of the Coast's first employee um, and on and on and on. I, I, I interviewed dozens of people. And again, as, as I went on and people seemed to realize uh, what I was doing and how seriously I was taking it, that's when like documents started to roll in as people are like, oh, he should have this, you know, he, he needs to see this. And suddenly it appears in my mailbox. Um, and I'm like, Holy crap, that's crazy. I can't believe I have this. Well, it, yeah. Uh, you know, as a historian, as somebody who is going to publish a serious work of history, um, 
it's it's often a minefield, especially when you're dealing with people who are still alive or, and people who may not get along with each other uh, now based on past interactions. Uh, so how is navigating that minefield? I, the hardest part was, I think, the Gygax Arneson section, actually, mm. um, which was not really the focus of my book. But I was like, OK, if I'm going to tell the story of the fall of TSR. And I, I want this to be for a, you know, theoretically, you could pick it up at an airport bookstore and get on the plane. And uh, even if you know nothing about D&D, you get a complete tale. You don't need to know who Dave Arneson is or anything like that. I'll tell you about it. That part I found much trickier uh, because Gygax explicitly went out and, and lied in later in life. He was like, let me tell you what happened with TSR. And it's just all not true. Um in my case, the the great fact checker would have been Lorraine Williams, but she refused to talk to me. Mm. Um, I didn't get very many differing versions of events from people. When I did get differing versions of events, I usually included them in the book. Um, and also the fact that I had access to what I feel like was a lot of primary source documentation that really lightened my load. Um, I could, you know, I could hear, uh, again, like I heard from Jim Fallon about the, uh, sorry, Jim Fallon was the a vice president of marketing at TSR. He told me all about this random house contract. And then a, a brother historian is like, Hey, I happen to have a copy of that random house contract. Would, would you like to see it? And I'm like, yes, yes, I would. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, so a lot of the time I was checking against primary source documents, um, so, like sometimes like the, the biggest contradictions I would find often is I would get store. I would get histories from people of like, again, the production of dragon strike, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hear from the people making dragon strike today. Yeah. Those of us who were in Hollywood making the movie, we didn't really know too much about the rules of the game. Like I don't, I couldn't even tell you if I saw a complete rule book, even though I made the movie. Uh, that is in the Dragon Strike board game, which is why if you've if you've seen it, there's no rules until 20 minutes into this video that's supposed to explain the rules to you. <laughs> but uh, in Dragon Magazine, there is a piece on the creation of Dragon Strike that's like, we worked so hard. We all worked together. It was a real collaboration. And I'm like, yeah, I think that's marketing. Like, I, I think that it didn't. Re- and, and again, like I, I've... It, the creators of Dragon Strike were Bruce Nesmith, who did Ravenloft, uh, and then went on to also create Skyrim. Um, Andrea Heyday, who also essentially co-created the Ravenloft setting, and then uh, Flint Dilly, the brother of the CEO. Um, and when I interviewed them and talked to them, like again, they're like, "No, we didn't really communicate." Uh, and again, I, I feel like I've read enough of both of all their writing that I can tell when they are or not writing something. And I'm like, I don't think this marketing piece in Dragon Magazine was written by you guys. So there are cases like that where I'm just like, you know, I'm just going to go with, with what I think is true based on my educated opinion. And again, people can go up and look at that piece. And, I, that, that is a case, though, where I, was, I didn't mention the Dragon piece because I just think it's wrong. Um, it felt like marketing. It read like marketing. So it is a case of me taking uh, oral history over a primary source document, mm-hmm. but it's not like a diary <laughs> entry, right. you know, it's a marketing yeah. sheet. It's just, you know, 
I, I got I get a few sales numbers from marketing sheets, and it's like mm, you know you, these are probably a little overrated, but at least right. it's some data. Anyway, now I've begun to ramble. Did well, I answer your question succinctly? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean th- that's that's what I, I that's what I want to hear. Right, I want to hear all of this. Uh, that's what's most interesting to me because you know people say hindsight is twenty twenty, but the people who say that have never written history. <laughs> because hindsight is definitely not 2020 because you have so many different points of view and, and so much different contradictory information, especially when marketing gets involved, uh, that it it's, can be hard to suss out the, the truth. And you do need to use your, your best judgment on what, what actually happened. Well, and I guess the other thing I would say is because Lorraine Williams, the CEO of TSR in the late 80s and uh, 90s, wouldn't talk to me it was very easy for people to basically be like she was just terrible and it was all her fault which to a degree did happen and i I was very concerned about i didn't want to just publish a hit piece on lorraine um i have had some people tell me that i was too kind to her um because again I, i give her benefits of the doubt i try and take her side um she is the uh, female CEO of an almost exclusively male organization in an almost exclusively male hobby that had to be rough. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, <laughs> I really do wish she had talked to me though. I mean, there's going to be a picture of her in the Washington post because of my book. <laughs> and so it would have been really nice if she would have talked to me like this is in how, how many people come along and are like, Hey, I, I've written a whole book kind of about you. Yeah. Um you should talk to me. And she's like, we have nothing to say to each other. She sent me one email and that's what it said was uh, we have nothing. I have nothing to say to you. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Yeah. That's has, has she, there have been other books that have come out recently of Dyson men and, and not a lot, but a few others. What was your reaction to those and, and how did you build upon those or, or, or not? Uh, so da- David M. Ewalt, first of all, who wrote of Dyson Men, I want to point out, got Lorraine to talk. Mm. Um, and in, in in that email to me, she I I casually saw her say, yeah, I got interviewed by this other guy, but I don't have any idea what happened to the interview. And I'm like, that's weird. Like, you gave this whole interview. This guy wrote this book with a whole chapter about you in it. And like, you don't know about that? <laughs> like, that's really weird. You're, yeah. He's the only person to get you to talk on the record in 25 years. Um, but with a lot of those books, um, I, I, again, have the advantage of coming later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they tend to be, you know, well done and, uh, but you know, like a few of them are a little too credulous to Gygax, mm-hmm. um, which I can understand. Like, I, I don't know that like, if I was reading a 20 page interview with Gary Gygax from 2002, that I would think this is going to be filled with lies. I think I'd be like, Oh, Gary Gygax is finally giving me the straight dope here. Right. Um, and a lot of them are a little, were a little too credulous of Gygax. Um, but I, I, again, uh, I think it was William Blake who said, if others had not been foolish, we should be so, uh, <laughs> which I, I hope doesn't sound too like I'm being too hard on those guys. Um, but I have the advantage of coming, you know, 10 years later. Sure. And again, John Peterson, who I feel like is the uh, the Thucydides of the role playing game history field, you know, he he had a very skeptical eye. Um, also, he bought a bunch of primary source documents, like diaries and stuff like that, and letters. 
so he just had access to more things than Gygax's interviews. And, you know, he was able to come along and be like, oh, this is not true. This is not true. This is not true. Like the, um, I don't know if you read it, but I certainly think the best history of 74 through 85 at TSR is Game Wizards by John Peterson. Right. Um, and again, that's I, I've read Empire of Imagination. I've read of Dyson Men. And again, of Dyson Men was written, I want, man, I want to say it was like 10 years ago. And you can see how the publishing industry was like, okay, if you're reading that book, you need to make sure that you're kind of holding the hand of a normal person who might encounter this work. And you need to like, I think he starts the history of games in ancient Egypt or something like that. Yeah. Um, And again, it's just, it's, it's more, it's almost like a work of anthropology where it's examining this type the gamer for a a mundane or muggle that might come along to encounter a gamer and, Oh, this will give you a better view of what they're like. Um, But again, I like, because it's 10 years later, because (laughs) D and D is popular culture now um, in a way it never has been before. Like, uh, in, for my interview with my local paper, uh, the journal Sentinel, um, at the top of the interview, of course, they have a picture from Stranger Things, <laughs> and which I, I'm fine with. I'm like, right. you know, it's it's great that there's a cultural touchstone uh, that a newspaper can reach out and be like, hey, everybody, you know, Stranger Things. D&D is from Stranger Things. This is about D&D. This never happened before. Uh, so, again, you can see with like of Dyson Men. um you know, if you go and read it now, it, 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 I read it. It's great. Again, he's the only person who got Lorraine to talk, but you can see how the publishing industry was just like, oh, slow down there, buddy. Yeah. You know, spoon feed this to the normies. Right, right. Let's not nerd out too hard here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things that has been remarkable, I think, about your book, as we're interviewing, has not been released yet. I have it on pre-order, so I'm ready. But when this releases, it will have been out. However, what caught my eye were a lot of the numbers that you've been sort of previewing, because that's something that we haven't seen a lot of in the previous books. And that's that's my strike zone right there. That's my what sells and what doesn't and why doesn't it sell if it doesn't and why does it sell if it does. And can I, so can those... I tell people where they can find the numbers really quick? Yes, please. So probably the I, uh, you can either friend me on Facebook. I'm uh, Benjamin Riggs on Facebook. On Twitter, I'm at Ben Riggs underscore. And every weekday for the foreseeable future, I will be posting uh, a D&D sales statistic. Um, I started with the sales of uh, Dungeons and Dragons versus the sales of Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. I've moved on into settings, um, and usually it's like a chart with maybe a couple sentences every day. But uh, to my knowledge, this is the first time a lot of these numbers are getting out there with you know specific digits being like. Uh, uh, I'd have to you know it's funny I've, I've been posting this for a week and a half and I'm like can I pull a sales number out of my butt? And I, I'd have to go look. But anyway, they're all on there on Twitter and Facebook, everybody. Uh, the most interesting thing I might th- be able to throw out right now is D&D outsold AD&D. There. Mm-hmm. You were talking and I interrupted you. I'm sorry. No, no. This is this is what I want to hear. It's funny because we, you know, on the podcast, we often talk about Hasbro news and Wizards of the Coast news. And you know, we'll pull up sales or marketing things. And, and one of the things that has been a amazing about fifth edition is that rather than declining sales, they've seen increasing sales. And so they put out all this information about, you know, sales over last year or sales over previous editions. And one of the things they often put in their, 
in their marketing is, but we don't have any numbers from TSR. <laughs> and, and suddenly we're seeing numbers from TSR. And, and so, you know, all of, all of the gaming slash business nerds out there are, are all flocking, flocking to this. What was some of the most surprising uh, stuff that, that you saw in the numbers? So I was, first of all, shocked that D&D outsold AD&D. Mm-hmm. Um, again, when I was into D&D, and by which I mean AD&D 2nd Edition, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, of course I'm going to start with AD&D 2nd Edition. What, am I a baby? Do I need <laughs> Dungeons & Dragons to spoon feed me this? No, I'm a smart 12-year-old. I'm advanced. Here mm-hmm. I go. Yeah. Um, and uh, the idea that actually, if you went back to the 80s, um, you could argue that Dungeons and Dragons, basically, I'm calling it basic D and D. Basic D and D introduced more people to role playing games than AD and D did, mm-hmm. um, which would have blown my mind uh, in the '90s, and I would have been like, well, "Then what? What's going on here? Yeah. Uh, why does AD and D even exist?" And I, I, I do think that, you know, probably AD and D had to do with the fact that you know Gygax and Arneson were feuding. Um, Gygax needed to take uh, all these rules all over the place anyway and put them in one place and he might as well while he's doing it say it's a new game so he doesn't need to pay Dave royalties and boom off we go to the races now AD&D is a thing that exists um, meanwhile you know D&D is given over to other designers who probably were better designers than Gygax actually was um, and you know again that game which I've played very little of but I think I prefer it um it's simpler quicker faster easier just you know you get to killing orcs quicker um and and maybe because of that more fun uh another thing that i would say surprised me was uh (laughs) the entire time i personally was into dungeons and dragons it was slowly dying um if you look at sales numbers for almost any ad and d product it's a spike with a long tail down mm-hmm. um, spike with a long tail down. And, you know, you still have some selling better than others, uh, but okay. I'm going to pull a number out of my butt and hope that it's right. Um, I want to say the, the, the first Greyhawk boxed sets mm-hmm. um, sold hundreds of thousands of copies in its first year of release but by 96, 97, you had, you know, Red Steel, Birthright. They were, Red Steel sold something like 15,000 copies in its first year of release, you know, and, and oh, how the mighty have fallen. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it looks like TSR took their audience and just chopped it up into little bits. And you had Ravenloft players who wouldn't buy anything for Forgotten Realms, who wouldn't buy anything for Greyhawk, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that TSR had, you know, killed itself and it was one of the ways it killed itself uh was that vicious cycle of of cannibalizing their own audience so it did surprise me that uh especially products i thought were great like uh ravenloft did okay like ravenloft sold like fifty thousand copies in its first year but that's like less than half of what the first forgotten realms box set did um i want to say Planescape never sold that well either. And I'm like, geez, Planescape is like the best thing they ever did. Um, Furthermore, like, again, I I read a few of the novels and I liked them just fine. 
but the novels really were 50% of the business at TSR and, and you can just see it in the sales. I do not have a ton of novel numbers, but I have, I think like everything for dark sun. I have all those <laughs> numbers. And if you took up every dark sun gaming product from its first year of release and put that in one pile and you took the first dark sun novel, that one novel sold more copies than all that gaming stuff put together. And the novel is, of course, ex- exponentially cheaper to produce because you don't need cartographers. You don't need nearly as many art pieces. The editing is simpler. You don't need to worry about continuity. I guess you do have to, not with the first novel, you don't have to worry about continuity. But um, so TSR really was, you know, <laughs> a company that was both a fantasy novel publisher and a game publisher uh, a rumor that went around in the 90s was that one day people would come into tsr and it would be a publishing company and that was it every game writer would now be a novelist every game editor would not be a novel editor and that's all you're going to publish is novels there was a point at which tsr claimed to be the largest publisher of fantasy novels on the north american continent in their marketing materials maybe maybe they were right but either way it's an impressive claim so just again growing up with tsr and thinking of it as um a company at with no limits that would be eternal and knowing that in fact at the entire time it was slowly dying uh was the great revelation to me in the sales numbers yeah do you, do you think, I mean, you, we, you mentioned the chopping up of the fan base based on all these different settings that seem to be coming out almost bi-weekly at some points uh, as, as, a, as a reason for some of the downfall. Do you think that there was anything else that led to that? What, what else? Um, that led to the dec- declining sales? Yeah, that led to the declining sales for, for the game. This, so you, you have... Uh, asked the the great terrifying question of us historians. Yeah, um, because th- there there are two declines in TSR sales numbers. There's one. I want to say it was eighty three to eighty four. You had a precipitous drop, and then in the nineties you had like a slow decline with a crash in ninety six, and not much of a recovery in ninety seven. And by then they're being sold to wizards and. Mm-hmm almost nothing gets sold in 98 really. Um, And (laughs) all of us have been like, so why, why did this happen? Why did this happen? Why did this happen? So I finally went and talked to an economist. Oh, and the economist is still, I I sent the economist, the numbers, they're still looking at them. But one of the first things the economist said was a, um, that there was an early 80s recession that ended in 1983. Um, and the economist was like, maybe suddenly people were like taking vacations and going to work instead of playing D&D. Because D&D traditionally actually does well in poor economies. Because uh, it's seen as a, a, a uh, item out of which you get a lot of use and a lot of value. So it was an explanation that I'd never heard before. The best explanation I heard before that for that dip was john peterson again the thucydides of rpg uh history writing uh he was like maybe D D just expanded as much as they could like every 12 year old that was going to buy a basic uh set had bought a basic set by that point every college student that was going to get into ad and d had gotten into ad and d and they don't need to buy these things anymore because you know that's both the feature and the bug of role playing is you only need to buy the rules once mm-hmm. 
So off they go. And that explains the sales crash. Um, and again, it could be there. It could be the recession. I am interested to see what else the economist comes back with, um, looking at macroeconomic trends. Because another weird thing, another weird coincidence that I have not <laughs> managed to put together into a narrative yet is uh, Marvel Comics declared bankruptcy. I think within twelve months of TSR being declared uh, being bought by Wizards. I think it was the year before they declared bankruptcy. So again, there was something going on yeah. there, and. Maybe the economist finds something, but other than um, the cannibalization of their fan base, I don't have a super good uh, explanation for the sales drop. However, I will say, I do think in the 90s, the cannibalization of the fan base is a really good explanation for the following reason. So for years, I am looking at this sales data and being like, it goes down, it goes down, it goes down, the line goes down, the line goes down, the line goes down, whatever it comes out, then it, then it gets worse. And every time a new product comes out, it doesn't do as well as the one before it. And yet I go and talk to uh, TSR staffers and they're like, but the company was doing fine. Like we were grossing between 30 and $40 million. Like every year it was pretty consistent. And so, of course, again, I'm sitting here being like, well, how do you square these two things? How do you keep grossing the same amount of money? Yeah. Uh, and yet your sales are declining. And the answer is, of course, the cannibalization. Like you're now you're now having to create five to six products uh, to sell to the same number of people, even the, in, in 1984 or 1985. Maybe it was only one or two products. Yeah. Um, I want to say in uh, 84... TSR came out with like two novels and in 95, I think I counted and they came out like 24. And again, the, 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 the grosses are about the same, yeah. the two novels versus the 24 novels. But of course that's increasing your costs. Uh, furthermore, um, it's incre- oh yeah, they did not do a good job keeping an eye on their profit and loss statements. Uh, you had, again, like the entire Planescape line essentially made no money. Worse yet, they actually had products that were priced so low that they lost money. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, in Dark Sun, they like lost a buck for every Dark Sun adventure they wrote for like the first three adventures. And they sold like 150,000 copies. Like they did a ton of work <laughs> to lose $150,000 on these Dark Sun adventures. Um, and that is, again, where the loans come in from Random House is, hey, you know, we're just going to borrow money from Random House. We're going to borrow money from Random House. Furthermore, as far as I can tell, those loans were put on their gross uh, gross profits for the year. And if you're running a company where you're taking out loans and putting those loans into your profit column, yep. that is troubling and difficult. <laughs> yeah. So was that like just people not understanding business? Was that was that you know willful ignorance or or that, is that hard to that say? That is where the Lorraine Williams uh, yeah. interview would have come in because yeah. I would want to ask her the, the following question. So, did somebody really explain to you what was going on here, or was the whole like random house sales thing a decision that was made beneath you, which was not properly explained to you, or did you know exactly what was going on? Um, because again, like in the short term, the random house loan thing is not a not terrible. Um, 
one of the, uh, again, Jim Fallon, VP of marketing told me as long as their returns were about 20%, it was fine. Um, they could manage the random house loan situation. Furthermore, um, there was a good reason to have this situation where TSR would be getting paid based on product received, not sold by random house because TSR made expensive hardcover books with color covers. Um, their success could be their own uh, problem. Um, if they sold out of the say AD and D players handbook, and they also had, you know, let's say an adventure called Ravenloft coming up. And suddenly you are facing a choice. You planned on publishing this adventure called Ravenloft, but there are no player handbooks out there and there's clearly a demand for them. And if you don't reprint those books, maybe it's going to break this cycle of demand. How long are people going to want this for? But then if you're not printing Ravenloft, you're not uh, servicing your existing players. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? And this random house, uh, arrangement allowed TSR to both continue publishing new product while chasing the sales of successful older titles. And when you think about it from the point of view of 1980, which is when uh, the contract went into effect, it was signed by Gary Gygax. You're like, oh, this makes total sense. The problem is in the 90s, uh, when you have dropping sales, it becomes a way to just keep the lights on. And the debt never gets paid down. Random House sues, and the pets, the 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 debt still does not sufficiently get paid down. Yeah. So for a lot of people who never played D anD D when TSR was still in business, they only know Wizards of the Coast. So how how do you cover that in the book? Is it how does Wizards of the Coast come to even be in a position to buy TSR? Well, um, so Wizards of the Coast uh, is co-founded by Peter Atkinson. Uh, Peter Atkinson grew up in a Seventh-day Adventist household. Um, he went to a Seventh-day Adventist college. And uh, because he was there during the Satanic Panic and was identified as the leader and source of D&D activity on campus, uh, he and his D&D group were banished from campus to his mother's basement. Um, his mother, even though she was also apparently a strict Seventh-day Adventist, had many more realistic fears about what her teenage son could get up to uh, on a Saturday night than playing D&D in the basement. Right. So uh, he uh, was an engineer at Boeing. And one day he and some friends are like, let's start a role-playing game company. So they do, Wizards of the Coast. Their, their first product is well-reviewed, but not a tremendous success. It gets them sued by Palladium, which almost kills the company. Um, and this is the story that I, I love to tell about Peter Atkinson. Um, and I, I'm hoping that people have not heard this before. So Peter Atkinson gets introduced to a game designer named Richard Garfield. And uh, Richard Garfield is like, hey, um, why don't you, you I'll pitch, I'll, I'll design a game for you. What do you want? And I, th- I hope I'm telling this part right. But Peter Atkinson is like, hey, it'd be great if there's some sort of a, you know, collectible card game. People could like play in lines at cons. And Richard Garfield comes back like a week later and is like, okay, here's what it is. It's called Mana Clash. And you have these two wizards and they're fighting and, and he outlines Magic the Gathering. 
And Peter Atkinson says he starts whooping and hollering and screaming. And, uh, you know, he's like, this is the most exciting idea I've heard since somebody explained D&D to me. It's going to change the world. And, of course, I'm reading this uh, in an interview he gave. And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, you're you're right. You know, hindsight 2020. You know, I'm very skeptical about this interview. And then I get to the end and I notice the date on the interview. And it's six months before Magic comes out. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, my God. Like, you know, every every uh, every entrepreneur in the gaming space thinks that their idea is going to change the world, yeah. and Peter Atticuson is the guy who it's true of. You know, he, yeah. he, he someone pitches Magic: The Gathering to him, and he is like, "Okay, well, I'm going to rearrange my life to make sure that this game comes out and gets all the support uh, I can give it." Mm-hmm. Um, Magic, of course, goes on to be a Titanic success, and. Uh, this is, of course, happening while TSR's numbers are continuing to drop. And I had a, a number of people who were familiar with Lorraine Williams tell me that she really hated Peter Atkinson. Um, and essentially, she, she seemed to resent him for his success. Uh, one person told me that she, quote, didn't like what he had done to the industry, which I think is just another way of saying that uh, she resented his success. Mm-hmm. So much so that um in gen con i think this is gen con 1996 um tsr owned gen con and lorraine williams the day before gen con started would go and look at all the booths and at the wizards of the coast booth she sees an advertisement for a game a magic the gathering computer game I think called the Planeswalkers War. And that's Wednesday. By Friday, she is suing Wizards of the Coast for trademark infringement in uh, federal court in Milwaukee. <laughs> like less than 40 head hours later. And she's claiming the name is too close to a Planescape product. And the trade dress also looks like Planescape. And she kind of had a point, actually. Uh, but it, it it's crazy to me that you know, there's no conversation. It was just like within 48 hours, bam, suing Wizards of the Coast. The the lawsuit is an incredible read. Like, it's just filled with dudgeon. And I'm like, man, like, did she like drive back to Lake Geneva and tell the lawyers what was going on? Did she call lawyers? They came down to Gen Con, looked at it, went back to Lake Geneva, wrote up the lawsuit and then turned it in on Friday in federal court. But the, the, uh, the ire and venom, and I think I want to say she wanted $50,000 in damages. Um, and uh, then I, you know, decades later, I asked Peter Atkinson about it, and he's like, "I barely remember that." <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, with with magic success, I yeah. could understand that. Yeah, he's like, "I had bigger fish to fry." Yeah. Um, and uh, this might have been at the same Gen Con. I, I I should really go and well, Peter Atkinson didn't remember what Gen Con this was at, but if this was the same Gen Con, the timing is just too sweet. Um, Magic was doing so well that the Wizards of the Coast board wanted Peter Atkinson to expand the uh, expand the company. You know, you're, you're making a ton of money. Well, you're reinvested somewhere. So he actually went to Lorraine and was like, hey, um, if you ever want to sell TSR, I'd be interested. I, I'm totally down. And she's like, no, thank you. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> 
but again, the truth was that the, the company was in, in terrible shape. The Friday before Christmas of 1996, um, they let go, I want to say two dozen people. Um, and it was uh, an absolutely terrible day. The, the, the vivid memories that people had of that day. And here, here I am interviewing them like over two decades later and people still tell me exactly what they did with their afternoon. They can tell me what the weather was like the day they got fired from TSR. Um, Cause it's such a deep and traumatic experience. Um, uh, so it's obvious to everyone now that TSR is in trouble. Uh, they stop publishing books because their publisher won't publish them anymore for reasons I won't tell you right now. Cause I feel like it's a side, uh, side quest. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it becomes obvious that they are in trouble, a former TSR employee who now uh, helps run five rings publishing goes to Lorraine and she, and he's like, Hey, and his name's Bob Abramowitz. And I was the first person to interview him. I called him during dinner one night and he just started spieling. It was like, he'd been waiting again, decades for some journalist to call him up and be like, Hey, tell me about uh, buying TSR. And he's like, okay, you know, let me put my food away for now and, and talk. Um, but because Bob Abramowitz had already worked at TSR, had connections with the company, uh, he gets a sit down with Lorraine and he's like, Hey, <clears throat> let me buy TSR. <laughs> uh, she allows him and a team to come out and do due diligence on the company. Um, they discover the company is $30 million in debt. Uh, and they grossed $38.6 million the year before. And that's not super sustainable. If you owe 30 million and you only bring in 38.6, I think a few million of that though was also a loan from random house. Anyway. Um, once, uh, Bob Abramowitz leaves Lake Geneva. He has a letter of intent from Lorraine Williams to saying, you know, you can buy TSR for this amount of money. He then meets with Peter Adkison and is like, hey, Peter Adkison, uh, I'm going to buy TSR. I know you've never been able to buy TSR. Do you want to get in on this deal? And Peter Adkison is like, yes. It's like, okay, well, you know, you need to loan me a million dollars right now. And um, after that, uh, if you buy TSR, you also have to buy my company too. And we have to be part of the deal. I am your doorway to TSR. There's no cutting me out of the deal. He says, fine. Uh, and that is how Peter Adkison finally got a chance to buy TSR. Um, he had the Baba Bramowitz acted as a go-between. Uh, and again, there's a thousand other stories about that purchase. Um, I had TSR employees tell me about how money was so tight that they couldn't afford the rent on the storage lockers they rented where they kept all the dioramas for Gen Con. So Monty Cook had to go and throw out hundreds of dioramas one day. And, you know, they go to this landfill in Southern Wisconsin. Um, all the plants were removed because they couldn't afford to, to keep the, the upkeep on the plants. Um, once Peter Adkison had, had bought the company, uh, he allowed artists to go into the art locker at TSR and just take their work. Mm. Um, and, you know, a lot of that stuff is probably worth millions of dollars today. Like, I can't even begin to imagine the value of the art he just gave away. Another interesting fact, uh, every piece of art you've ever seen for Dungeons and Dragons, which was sitting in that art locker in Lake Geneva, in the sale of TSR two wizards of the coast was valued at zero. There was no line item for the 
art locker at TSR. So essentially Peter Atkinson and Wizards of the Coast got all the D&D art for free in the sale. Um, is that was that too long or was that a good answer to your question? <laughs> no, that 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 is that's an amazing answer. I mean, this is it's just yeah, you know, as a fan of the game, it's it's interesting, but yeah, you know, as a fan of the business, this this stuff is so it's so important to to know for historical reasons and for forward-looking reasons, right? I part of my job is deciding what to publish next for my company. And having these lessons, uh, those who refuse to learn history, right, are doomed to repeat it. And so, you know, I want to know now how Wizards of the Coast, being a subsidiary of Hasbro, looks at the game. Do they look at the game as something they can make money on or something they just need to publish because they're going to make tons of money on a movie? I I will tell you right now, um, I think that... uh... (laughs) interviewing people about the events of the nineties 20, 30 years later is just the right amount of time Mm -hmm. um, to get the truth out of them. Uh, Wizards of the coast now in my experience is a vastly more opaque entity. Um, But again, when I think back to the nineties, like getting an answer out of TSR was also equally hard. Um, I need people to quit, get fired, uh, have a couple decades to feel like they have it behind them. And then to come out and be like, okay, here's the truth about what happened with fifth edition, you know? Um, And uh, here's what really happened with fourth, but I just don't know that anyone is there quite yet. Um, Because again, I have no, like I I would love to write a follow-up volume and the follow-up volume I think would be theme. If if the first one was thematically organized around why did TSR fail? The next one would be what happens when you give away your IP? You know, they, they bought, uh, the, the, the bottom line cost of, uh, TSR was $30 million for Wizards of the Coast. So you spend $30 million to acquire this company and this intellectual property. And within a few years, you essentially give it away with the open gaming license. Uh, how does that shake down for you? You know, um, and again, so much of that question depends on where you stop the story, right? Like yeah. if you stop with the failure of fourth edition and the rise of Paizo, you're like, oh, what a boneheaded move. If you continue to fifth edition, you're like, I don't know, this is more complicated now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but again, I, I feel like that is the experiment that the role-playing game industry has run over the past almost quarter century now, which is what if you were to take Star Wars and just say anyone can make a Star Wars product? Mm-hmm. How, how would that shake down? Yeah. Um, so I, I find that very, very interesting. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm rambling now. No, I please ramble on because I want to. I want to hear it all. It, it going back to the the purchase of of TSR by Wizards of the Coast. You know, it it was thirty million dollars and a good chunk of change back then, and they must be able to see the numbers and see how the sales are falling. So there must have been a reason someone must have seen something that said we can do better than TSR. And I'm wondering, you know, who, who was that? Was that Peter Atkinson? Was that somebody else? So your, your observation about the numbers um, was in line with what the wizards of the coast board was saying at the time, Peter Atkinson had to really make a case to his board to buy TSR. 
because the number one argument uh, that the, the board made was why not just let it fail? Like, let it fail. Let it, let's buy it cheaper. Cause they, they also bought the debt when they bought TSR. Um, so, Hey, just let the company fail and we'll get it cheaper. Um, there were two perils with that strategy, however, one of which uh, Adkison was aware of, one of which he was not. Um, but the first, and the reason that, this, this is the argument Peter Adkison made at the time, if we wait for it to fail, people will scatter. Like, you know, the, the brand is something that's valuable, but those people are just as valuable as the brand. Um, you know, if we let uh you know monty cook and and bruce cordell and bruce uh bill slavicek and ed stark and harold johnson and john pickens and the some of some of whom had been there since the 70s mm-hmm. if we let them lose their jobs and uh scatter to the winds it'll put us behind by years um so that was the argument that he made that was persuasive at the time you know we don't want to lose momentum there was a, a, a hidden threat, um, which I don't know if it, I don't think anyone is aware of, maybe except for Lorraine Williams at the time and, and her lawyers. But in the spring of 1996, TSR had used D&D intellectual property as collateral for loans from, I believe, State Street Bank. To the tune of millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was going to, this loan was going to be used, I believe, to pay down the debt to Random House. But if you go to the uh, U.S. Copyright Office and you look at the loans that they, at the properties that they registered as being used for this collateral, it's Player's Handbook, Dungeon Master's Guide, uh, the Forgotten Realms setting, the Dragonlance setting, uh, the Dark Sun setting. Uh, and then they also go and they, they would list individual works like the Complete Fighter's Handbook, Complete Elves. Da, 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 da. And if TSR had gone to the auction block and all of those individual items were put up there, if someone buys the Player's Handbook, and someone else buys the Dungeon Master's Guide. <laughs> Who the hell owns Dungeons and Dragons? Yeah, wow. <laughs> Suddenly, lawyers and judges are going to have to figure out who owns D&D. Yeah. It, I cannot imagine the disruption to the hobby. I cannot imagine the disruption to the game. I think it's fair to say it would have killed Dungeons and Dragons or set it back decades. Um, so when Peter Adkison and Wizards of the Coast bought TSR in 1997 before it went bankrupt and prevented that from happening. It was a, a salvation of the game. And again, wow. they, as far as I know, uh, he didn't know about that at the time. Cause Lorraine, I don't think Lorraine Williams was like, Oh yeah. And we used all this stuff as collateral on a loan. You know, uh, and it, frankly, if she told me he probably wouldn't have cared, but from the perspective of, of today, 2022, yeah. um, it, it was a more of a salvation and more of a dodged bullet than anyone knew at the time. Wow. That that's, that is amazing because yeah, if that happens, then everyone tries to publish their own version and you, you get total chaos. Uh, wow. So uh, we're, we're getting to the end of the show. Uh, is there, is there anything else that you would like to, to talk about? Like, uh, you know, who who is the audience for this book? Right, who should rush out and grab it right now? Oh, so uh, everyone listening, uh, yes. and, and buy copies for your friends. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, and I should say, that, again, the name is uh, Slaying the Dragon, The Secret History of Dungeons and Dragons by me, Ben Riggs. Uh, you can get it everywhere. Uh, it should be at your local friendly bookstore right now. Um, it might even be at your friendly local gaming store, because I know a few gaming, score- gaming stores are picking up copies as well. Uh, so talk to your friendly local gaming store. But uh, while I wrote it, uh, as a 40 something dude who was into TSR products in the nineties. Um, I also intended it for a general audience. Um, and I, some of the most satisfying reviews I've seen on, on Goodreads have been, I'm not into D and D at all, but this was really good. <laughs> yeah, cool. You know, I, I really, uh, take those as, as fine compliments. Uh, and again, the, like the reviewer for my local paper, um, was not a D and D guy. Uh, but he, he read the book. He really enjoyed it. Um, so it does seem to be a successful, uh, tale for a crossover audience. And again, I, I would think of it as a, as a, a you know, a, a business book about a failure. Um, if, if you like looking at car crashes, you know, the, <laughs> my, my book is a hundred thousand word car crash, uh, for you to examine. Um, because man, so many mistakes, so many mistakes, yeah. uh, uh, were made. And it is why I wish I could have talked to Lorraine Williams. Cause I would just like to know, again, maybe I'm being too nice to her by being like, you know, maybe no one told her cause she liked yes men apparently. Yeah. Um, so, you know, maybe people just took loans out from Random House, added them to the bottom line, took it to Lorraine and was like, see, Lorraine, we made more money this year because wow. I took out loans, <laughs> you know, because yeah. um, I, I want to say, I don't know if I ever saw her signature on any of the loans. I think it was always Willard Martins, the COO, who also wouldn't talk to me. Um, <laughs> well, maybe there's a reason for that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's one of those things where... Uh, I can understand not wanting to to <laughs> parse over in great detail one of your life's most terrific failures. Yeah. Um, but keeping the lights on at TSR was also probably one of the most important things they did with their lives. True. Um, it was the silver age of D&D. Uh, arguably, some of the best setting products came out during that time. Arguably, some of the best novels came out during that time. Um, and it, it if... D&D had gone bankrupt in 85, 86, which could have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I, again, I think it would have been a fad, like a pet rock. Right. Um, but keeping the lights on are the re- is a reason the hobby still exists. Yeah. Uh, and I've begun rambling again. But I will come back to, I honestly <laughs> believe that uh, if you like good writing and business stories and stories of failure and stories in the Midwest and eccentrics, uh, this is probably for you. Awesome. Now you also do a podcast. Tell us just a little bit about that and where we can find that. So, um, oh, I should say one more time. Also on Twitter, I'm at Ben Riggs and I'm posting D&D sales numbers. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a podcast called Plot Points. Uh, God, we're entering maybe our 10th year. Um, We did like nine years of role-playing game reviews, which was very successful. Then there was a pandemic and I had a kid. And suddenly, you know, 10 hours of reading, thinking about a role-playing game, maybe playing it, uh, recording an episode that might be an hour or two long, and then spending an hour or two editing that episode. Suddenly it became untenable with a tiny human that I had to keep alive. Mm -hmm. So uh, Plot Points is currently me and a RPG academic reading aloud the first edition Dungeon Master's Guide. 
<laughs> so I get to comment on history. He gets to comment on kind of game theory and other stuff like that. Uh, it seems to be going well. Um, but if you're interested in either of those two things, either, you know, deep cut reviews of role-playing game products uh, or <laughs> listening to me in an academic read aloud, the Dungeon Master's Guide, as written by Gary Gygax, uh, I'm your Huckleberry. It's called Plot Points. Go find it. Um, I, I do wonder, like, see, I, it's funny. Like, I always think that's such a niche audience. Who wants to listen to me read the Dungeon Master's Guide aloud? But it does really well. Like, I get amazing feedback on it. Yeah. So I've... some people must like it. I, I would listen to that for sure. That's hearing page, it from the game design side and from the history side. That's right up my alley right there. We're on page 23. We've done 24 episodes of it and each one's about an hour long. <laughs> <laughs> you've, you've got enough content to last you for a, a wee bit of time. There. Yeah, we're good for, you know, until the Ivanka Trunk administration, at least. So. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Ben, thank you again for coming and sharing this great information. And thank you for sharing the, all those numbers uh, as well. And uh, I want to thank our listeners out there and thank you to our patrons. So Ben, one more time, tell people where they can find you uh, on social media and find your book. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. On Twitter, I'm at Ben Riggs underscore. My book should be available anywhere you look for it. Um, and uh, again, tell your friends because I, I will also tell you, this book is definitely being watched by my publisher. My publisher is St. Martin's Press, which is owned by Macmillan. And they want to see if a role-playing game history uh, can move copies. Because if it does, I think we're going to get more books like this, which we would probably all like. So. I would definitely like it. And I've thrown in my my few cents. So thanks uh, a lot. Sean. We're going to see what we can do. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin, and you can follow the podcast on Twitter at mastering D and D mastering dungeons is a misdirected Mark production. So Ben, what are we going to do now? Go kill some monsters or whatever. Yeah, we're whatever. <laughs> <laughs>